0: Doo, doo, doo. Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle, Companies and Markets show. I am John Heumann, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Uh, it's been a tumultuous week again, which is great for us uh, in the business of news. I'm joined today by Bradley Gerrard, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley?
1: I'm great, thanks, John.
0: Wonderful. Ian Smith, companies editor. How are you, Ian?
1: Nice to have John. How are you doing? Yeah,
0: good, good. And uh, Emma Powell, our banking correspondent. How are you, Emma?
2: Good, thanks.
0: Good, and you've written the cover feature. That's I one. have, Banks yeah. after Brexit. Yeah.
2: It's
0: been a bit of a difficult time for them recently Uh, or should I say should I say because uh, I had a wonderful tweet this week from a reader so I I would say the banks have been having a torrid time of late. Now I didn't realise I did this and and maybe you can correct me but I had a reader tweet me to suggest the podcast drinking game uh, which is one shot every time I say a torrid time which uh, (laughs) in the markets we've been having recently is quite a lot. Now I didn't realise I said a torrid time a lot. Do you think I say a
1: torrid time a lot? I'm not sure how often you say a torrid time, but I have noticed there is, are no drinks around us. Well, oh. well no,
0: because because, then... because our reader, Colin oh, Lutz, on the other end, he's playing the drinking game. So, oh, so every time I say a torrid time... He's probably having he a torrid to time. sure. He must, he must be. Well, by now, he's, he's had about five shots, <laughs> so he I'll will soon now. be having a torrid time. Absolutely. What do, you, I, mean, what do you, I mean, given the marks we've been having, which has been fairly torrid, I mean... It's been a torrid time. And it's it's hardly surprising that I've said a torrid time quite a lot. So, you know, poor Colin Lusk, I think by the end of this, is going to be Colin Lush because uh, it's been a torrid time and the bank's been having a torrid time. Torrid time for all. (laughs) That's enough. Thank you for the tweet, Colin. It's uh, fantastic. And I will do my very best not to say a torrid time so much in the future. I I will will find an
1: alternative for the phrase a torrid time. (laughs) I haven't noticed that you use that a wonderful alliteration, but yeah.
0: Yes, yes. Well, okay. Well, I won't say it again.
1: Okay, right.
0: Busy week uh, again. All change in government, which we've been uh, excitedly following all morning. But we're not necessarily interested in politics for the sake of politics, interesting though it may be. Bradley, what's going on in the news?
3: Well, I mean, I guess a, a brief point on the whole Brexit situation. I mean, one, one very key thing about it is that Um, we're being told or were told by the leave camp that we were going to be very much open for business and seeking trade deals left, right and centre with the most exciting economies around the world. Well, the EU's trading goods deficit with China hit a record 180 billion euros. And actually the, the UK had one of the biggest deficits. So if we are going to start trading with the wider world outside of Europe, we're going to need to get our skates on because this data isn't that great. Yeah, but a deficit
0: is, you know, let's suggest that we are buying goods from them. They will want to continue trading with us.
3: That's true. So it's not entirely bad, but also we do want to balance it a bit as well. You know, you want exports to, you, you perhaps don't want such a big deficit. The UK needs to maybe... Balance that a bit.
0: Mm. But then we are a you know, we are naturally an importing type of country. Um, and I guess this was one of the key planks of the Leave campaign. People will want to continue selling to us, therefore we will be able to go and strike trade deals.
3: Quite possibly. And actually that suppose that the counterbalance to that is that actually um, our export in services was the third highest in the EU behind yeah. Germany and Ireland. Now
0: that is a that is a worry that I think Many in the Remain camp said that the Leave camp had underestimated. Um, and I guess a lot of those services would revolve around financial services.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So prob- probably the m- most important person in terms of the cabinet reshuffle that we've seen is David Davis, who's the new minister for Brexit. Minister for Brexit. And, and he's been writing on the Conservative Home website um, about what he had written recently about the kind of trade deals that he would go after. I think everyone's looking for, are we going to go down this kind of Norway type model with access to the European economic area? Or are we going to um, kind of be forced to trade according to world trade rules? Uh, and seek, you know, these individual agreements for different countries. So everyone's watching kind of very closely what he's saying um, and how he's directing things.
0: Mm. Well, I, guess, I guess another key uh, plank of the Leave campaign was that Europe doesn't actually have trade deals with many of the countries we're talking about. Anyways, it doesn't have a trade deal yet with the United States. It's It's been trying to strike this TTIP um, for, for many, many years. It doesn't have a trade deal with China doesn't have a trade deal with India, as far as I'm aware.
1: And that's why we have another minister, new ministerial position as well, which is drumming up international trade deals, which is Liam Fox. So that would be, you know, I think those two positions together will be absolutely key. Indeed. In our leadership.
0: Indeed. And also, I mean, you know, given that trade is something that's conducted across borders, we've also got Boris <laughs> at the Foreign Office.
1: Well, it, yeah. Wow. We've got a foreign minister who's not going to be responsible for Brexit or for international trade deals. So I'm not sure who's going to want to meet him when he goes overseas. <laughs>
0: oh, come on, everyone wants to meet Boris, don't they? Do they, yeah. Yeah, yeah they yeah.
1: do, they do, they do. We have, they have a sweepstake in the office about how long he's going to last. Oh, really? But I might not say well, who's no on, which time of that. Yet? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were too busy organising your drinking games.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry about that. You know, well, <laughs> you were having maybe, time. maybe Boris will join me in the future for uh, some of them. Okay, right, so trade, obviously Brexit. Yeah, repercussions big in the news. The thing that struck me that I thought was quite interesting was this uh, pension deficit issue that's raised its head this week.
3: Yeah, it's quite big. Um, it's uh, data out from the um, the Pension Protection Fund, I think it was, um, and it basically shows that um, the sort of state of UK PLCs, the pension deficit, is really quite terrible. Um, so the UK's aggregate pension deficit um has reached three hundred and eighty three point six billion. So it kinda means that a total of eighty four percent of pension funds are in deficit, which obviously is not a great situation to be in.
0: Ian, this was your old patch from my the old previous patch. title. So I mean from zero in oh eight to three hundred and eighty billion today, that's a significant move but what are your thoughts on this?
1: It's obviously the the lower interest rate for longer environment that we've seen and what that means is that uh, gilt yields have kind of been pushed down as we all know, which means that pension funds liability so these are these are the kind of older type of pension funds where they have promised a kind of certain level of pension um so the liabilities under those pension schemes are much higher and there's a big gap between the assets and the liabilities um so that's the deficit and those deficits are going to be wider and wider for longer why does that matter well companies contributions into these schemes are based on this funding calculation so if that it stays the way that it has been. It may mean that companies are having to pay more into their pension schemes, or they're having to extend the recovery plans of payments into their pension schemes. Uh, it's not good news for companies. No, um, I mean I, I
0: guess that reflects what you said in your your chart. Yesterday.
2: Yeah, exactly. Actually, interestingly, um, when I also used to write about pensions, I remember covering some pension schemes, and actually the fact that so many pension schemes are in deficit. I mean. It was very rare that you would come across a defined benefit pension scheme that was fully funded, like incredibly rare, really. I remember reporting on some pension schemes. And as Ian said, usually they use uh, gilts to discount the liabilities. And actually, I came across a few that started using alternative methods because gilt yields were so low. Mm. So things like total return from the pension scheme assets and things like that. And when they did their triennial valuations. So there's different ways of doing it. But it is a worrying trend because... You could do obviously increase your employer contributions, or if employees don't have you know, there's cash to, to use to plug the scheme deficit. I know there's companies like Diageo, for instance, that use kind of alternative ways of financing. I think it was whiskey Diageo did, cheese yeah, has used... also been used. Cheese, cheese. I can't, who was that that did the cheese? Dairy
1: <laughs> Crest, yeah, and it's so have I been th- Dairy Crest, surely. Uh, yeah who was the cheese yeah i, think I don't know the but
2: that they're the two famous examples yeah, of, yeah. Of, they basically uh, use
1: these contingent assets to kind yeah, of back because, the pension yeah. scheme so th- it's fascinating companies are trying to get around this issue um but there's also obviously impacts on dividends um, i was
0: going to say if a company doesn't have any cheese or whiskey to, to plug its pension <laughs> shortfall then then the cash has got to come from somewhere and and dividend
1: seems the most obvious yeah and, uh, and we wrote a feature about this earlier this year and it and at many companies, the company actually has to agree with the trustee that the pension scheme, what it will do to service the deficit ahead of being able to promise any dividends to shareholders. So it really can be a kind of a covert threat to your returns. Um, and at the moment, pension schemes really are having a torrid time.
0: Yeah, indeed. And we had there was a very good comment, actually, from... Uh, Andrew at smithepping.com uh, on your piece, which is worth a read. Yeah, we get some good comments on the website, and this is one of them. But I guess this guy's worry is that low interest rates actually lead to a misallocation of capital into things like housing and, and real estate. And uh, you know, I guess something we're seeing with the property bubble as it, as it stands at the moment.
1: Yeah, because the returns that uh, pension funds get on there fixed income assets is so low they turn to alternatives um, such as infrastructure or kind of areas of property um, which then you know means a lot of institutional money and insurance company money as well um, alongside pension funds is kind of pouring into those areas to try and eke out greater return which obviously when you have that kind of capital flow can distort valuations in those areas Mm. so you know there's a wider impact that this can have which ultimately can hit retail uh, shareholders too.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, property's obviously been in the the spotlight recently, particularly some of the issues that have come to the fore regarding the structure of some of the open-ended vehicles that have had to essentially gate this week to redemptions.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, there there was quite a few, mainly mainly last week, open-ended funds having to prevent investors buying or selling units in those funds because to try and sell a building very quickly is obviously very difficult. And so what was happening is, as the kind of fear around Brexit was... um, ramping up, you saw people wanting their money back from property funds. And although most uh, funds run by the likes of like Standard Life Investments, or Viva Investors, while they have a cash buffer, they were seeing that kind of eroded quite a lot. And actually, it seems that um, the Bank of England and the Financial Conduct Authority kind of were talking about this potential risk on the day of the outcome of the Brexit vote. And there seems to be a sort of consensus among policymakers that there may well need to be something done about the structure of open-ended property funds because we've seen this a couple of times now. Yeah,
0: I mean, the thing is, we kind of knew this was a risk all along and the FCA apparently knew this was a risk all along. And in fact, fact, they they had been looking at particularly property-based open-ended funds, to, to work out how they can mitigate some of this risk. And yet, it's happened again.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's been a risk since it happened last time. In, so. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, least, and, and, and since then.
0: I mean, I look at this piece and they say, we're going to
3: look again at how the funds were. Well, come we kind of new anyway. I mean, mm. it's, it's madness. I guess what they're trying to do is they, uh, they have to be quite careful, I suppose, in terms of how they are seen to intervene in the market, although mm. they obviously are a regulator, so they kind of can do. So I guess what they're really saying is that, look, asset managers out there, can you please come to us with a situation that we can say, yeah, that's the way forward, or at least do it collegiately rather than forcing through a change, which the SCA probably doesn't want to do unless it really, really has to. One of the things
0: that that has appeared to come up this week is that some of these property funds are investing in other property funds or real estate investment trusts or whatever, just other types of property. So what you have is essentially a really kind of bizarre circular ownership so that when something starts to go, everything goes. That's terrifying. We should not be here. We, this has happened before and we should not, this should not be allowed to be happening.
3: I guess so the ownership of um, things like real estate investment trusts in an open-ended fund makes sense for that cash buffer. So if you're running an open-ended fund and you want... Not to just have cash, which doesn't really do much for you, but you want something that actually produces a bit of a return for investors, you buy a real estate investment trust, then when you have a knock at the door for investors for your cash back, you can sell that investment trust straight away. But then you've redeemed some cash. But then
0: you you as uh, you know you have essentially magnified the contagion effect across an entire sector that happens when you do have these periods of stress. And then the whole sector starts to sell off. Absolutely. And everyone panics and everyone start, starts to want to redeem their cash even more. I mean this is just, this is just it's just it's just an accident waiting to happen.
1: And they also I suppose you also have the the multi-asset funds and other funds as part of the same investment house that have invested in the property fund as well. So there's a kind of contagion there within the kind of manager.
3: And also the w- fact that uh, model portfolios are becoming a very big thing nowadays and they will probably rebalance quarterly, maybe maybe more often, maybe less often. But I was pr- put a lot of money on it that the vast vast majority if not all model portfolios will have some exposure to property mm. and they're likely to have done so through very credible and good funds like the ones we've seen that have had to gate investors money I'm not saying they're not credible I'm just
0: saying that the, the, the you know the whole industry seems to have proceeded in a way which is just basically it's risky
3: yeah I mean it's it's been involved in a very sort of bullish situation it's Mm. arguably got a bit away from itself and i mean i guess what the property funds could or what the houses running property funds could have done to mitigate this is and they they did have more cash well there's, there's a couple of there's half more cash and there's changed the pricing which admittedly they did do a bit before brexit but maybe they didn't do it early enough or buy enough maybe what they needed to do was actually ramp the pricing up to buy it by quite a lot to really disincentivize people often fund houses don't want to do that because obviously then they're not going to get money into an asset class that's actually doing quite well and is popular. But there's perhaps an argument for that and maybe we'll see something from the FCA around that type of thing. Maybe there'll be something around pricing um, in, in relation to a certain dynamic in the market or something. I mean, it, it could be exceptionally complicated to yeah. actually figure out how you fix this problem. I
0: mean, I must admit, uh, and I don't know if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but uh, certainly something we've discussed in the office, you know, if you look at our top 100 funds, yeah, you know, there are a fair few property funds within there, pretty much all of them with the exception of one. Um, pure property direct investor rather than a, a kind of fund of, uh, of property listed investments. They're all, all investment trusts. And, you know, apart from the contagion effect, they don't have the same structural problem.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's arguably a much safer way to invest in property, if you're going to, because of the fact that you can liquidate those shares straight away and get your money back. Whereas in a stress situation, like we saw very recently, with an open-ended fund, you know, the houses have the option of, of holding you in. Um, I mean, one thing that's interesting, actually, that did happen this week is Aberdeen Asset Management. They took a slightly different approach. They did kind of... Um, they they greatly changed the uh the valuation of the properties they were holding so their NAV dropped by about I think it was 17% so that kind of disincentivizes selling it's kind of meant to stabilize the market they did put a suspension on trading and then they ended up extending it and they said to people if you've put in a sell order and you want to change your minds then we're going to use this sort of three or four day periods to let you do that and they updated on this earlier this week and a lot of people actually according to them did decide not to follow through with that sell uh, thing so arguably Aberdeen's approach and Lng that did a fairly similar thing okay. was a bit more sensible
0: Yeah, lessons to learn then I mean talking to contagion uh, we have a a chart about uh, Italian banks uh, this week and the uh, the drag down effect there on on European financials as a whole it's been it's been Terrifying. What's yeah, it has,
3: it has been terrifying, and it's um, it's not about to get much better. Potentially, there were some slightly reassuring words from Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, earlier this week, saying effectively she didn't want to sort of obviously watch an Italian banking crisis happen but effectively the problem with Europe's banks is that they have a lot of um, bad loans such as was the case with our own banks a few years ago and the banks have written the value of these down quite a bit but the market is even more sceptical on the valuations of these so share prices in Italian banks have been sort of they've been hit very badly. Well the
0: the problem I guess with Italian banks is that a lot of the bonds in these banks are held by retail investors. Exactly. So, Italian banks don't want, the essentially, the general public taking a massive hit. Uh, so, they want to somehow recapitalise the banks to to avoid this situation. But, unfortunately, European rules prevent them from doing so.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, you've got the European it's... rules preventing them, and you've got the fact that your your base of investors is like, the, you know, the, the percentage that is an ordinary man and woman mm-hmm. on the street is quite high. So, to ask them to chip in to save the bank is... Probably impossible or at least not going to go down very well. So there's a bit of a problem there. But I, I suspect um, some loophole in European law may well be found.
0: Well, well I guess they, they have to find one. Otherwise, you might see the next uh, exit coming from, from southern Europe. Possibly. I mean,
3: it's, it's, it's certainly a problem. If, if, even if it doesn't precipitate another exit, it's going to precipitate another bout of fear.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we're going to touch on banks very shortly, Emma, when we discuss your excellent feature this week. Um, Let's go to some of the longer uh, news pieces we did. Burberry is interesting. Never been a fan of myself, but uh, they have a new chief exec, and shares responded well.
3: Yeah, they did. The share price kind of ignored the fact that actually performance was pretty flat. But um, the interesting thing about... Burberry is that Christopher Bailey has acted as the uh, group's joint chief executive and creative head. Maybe that doesn't sound too strange to listeners but actually those two roles are very very often split within fashion houses because they're they're arguably very different skills making sure you're creating a product that people want and actually running a business. They're they're two different skill sets.
0: Yeah well, well Christopher Bailey has been the the creative force behind Burberry for a long time so during Angela Aron's tenure as chief executive exactly um, and it was seen as quite unusual when he took over as Chief Executive and retained that job, yeah. I guess they were scared to let him give up the the creative uh, side of things, given how how well he had done in that respect, but wanted to reward him um, and not you know essentially not jump over him for, for the job that he probably had earned in in respect of the work he 'd done so it 's a tricky situation for them
3: it obviously was, but obviously the the outcome of that tricky situation was that it hasn 't gone incredibly well I mean uh, from a sort of shareholder perspective I guess an operational performance perspective that can be down to things that are perhaps outside his control I mean just sort of sentiment in the market demand for luxury goods well especially with China uh, and and it's clamped down on essentially uh, corporate gift giving
0: and that kind of
3: thing Yeah, so there are things you can't control but it seems that obviously um, what's happened now is that we're going to have a return to two people doing these two
1: distinct roles it's important to have a chief executive that will talk regularly to the market and be present for that and shareholders obviously for good reason don't like it when they don't have direct access to that uh, person um, my Filling with this, you just, I wonder how it seems like, oh, this perfect solution now that he's stepped aside. But you, yeah, the history doesn't have great precedence for people that kind of step down or if you, whether it's a step aside or whether it's a step down from the top job, whether he was, you know, is that going to, is he going to be very well incentivized to stay within the business? Is that, you know, a big step down? You don't, for me, I think it adds a little bit of unpredictability while it obviously is a good um, thing for the business in, in the short term you wonder what's next uh, for Mr. Bailey.
0: Indeed. Well, David Cameron hasn't stepped down from PM into the cabinet, has he? I mean, it's not the way it works. Yeah, I guess there's parallels there.
1: And you, see you and for example, if we look at uh, Alliance Trust, which is the kind of comparison after the big shareholder um, re- revolt against the the head there, Catherine Garrett Cox. Yep, that's right. Um, she um, steps back from the kind of the leadership role um, to the kind of former role that she had, and she left shortly thereafter. So mm-hmm. I don't. Mean, it's it's not always great news that someone will kind of step back, but this does seem quite.
3: I guess as well, they've hired somebody who um, is likely potentially to to know uh, Christopher Bailey very well, having been in the fashion industry himself, as Marco Gobetti, who is joining from... um French luxury house Celine. So there's the I know it will. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so do I all all my Celine bags and clothes. So um yeah, I mean there's a chance at least that the the hire is a sensible one for the for Burberry itself in terms of they've hired a, a, a well known fashion name. Um but also there's a chance that obviously because he understands the fashion business, he'll be very well aware of Christopher Bailey as a designer, and obviously the, as you said, John, the, the the skills that he's brought to Burberry in terms of designing and keeping the the
1: company on trend. I suppose
0: indeed, and we still like Burberry shares, and mm. uh, you know, in a stop from a historical perspective, they're very cheap, so we've got them to buy still, and
1: a nice weak pound as well,
0: and a nice weak pound. I mean, talking to the weak pound, uh, there's another story here that Harriet's written on pricing pressure for British retail. I guess that does stem largely from the fact that most of the goods that are sold in the shops here are sourced from over. Sees often in dollars. So there is a concern that uh, prices will need to rise.
3: Yeah, exactly. And you've got this coming on top of obviously the national living wage, which was implemented earlier this year. And there's something that you know, different sizes of companies will deal with in sort of different ways. Um, so you've had that pressure. You've had you've now got this pressure, as you say, if, if a company's buying stock or goods from overseas, um, particularly the US, um, a bit from Europe, that's become more expensive in the past few uh, weeks, given Sterling's fall. Although there was a bit of a rally, actually, today in Sterling because of the fact that interest rates were held.
0: I also, I think it's been going on for a couple of days. The Theresa bounce. I think people liked the fact that we had, as a nation, as a Conservative Party, uh, elected a new leader quite quickly, and uh, one who it was generally felt would have a less of a hard-line stance on negotiations with Europe. So th- there was a big bounce in sterling when, when it became clear that Theresa May was going to be the next PM.
1: Yes, in return of some political certainty Brilliant. after an incredible <laughs> period of volatility.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, talking of the weak pound, I guess that makes UK assets quite attractive. So we've, we now have Poundland, uh, which has a formal offer from Steinhoff. Yep. And they're getting a bit more for their money now.
3: Yeah, exactly. And they'll they'll be pleased to have done this deal, seeing as it's been third time lucky in terms of attempted takeovers. Just this year, I think, actually, they tried home retail earlier in the year. And um, then they went for Darty as well, which is uh, more, more based in France, but does have a listing in London.
0: I, I guess uh, that companies like Poundland, well, again, sourcing a lot of their goods from overseas, but forced to sell them at a pound. And I guess this applies to a lot of the discount retailers, even if they aren't selling everything at a pound the uh, weakness of Sterling is a real problem for for anyone who doesn't have that ability to, to raise prices.
1: Yeah, they can't pass it on. Uh, they're also struggling from footfall hasn't been good, the integration of 99p stores has been more costly than they had anticipated. So there's actually quite a lot of problems facing Poundland. And there wasn't a huge amount of de- uh, detail around what Steinhoff wants to do uh, with Poundland. So I'm going to be very interested to see what their strategy is for the business. Obviously they t- obviously it's just Steinhoff wants to grow its European price-led Retail group, uh, so um, retail operations. Um, but yeah, like to see what they're going to do to try and heal this business because it, it works as long as they keep adding stores. But you know, the like for likes don't look good.
0: I've seen that before. Growing stores uh, often leads to overexpansion. So, you know, at some point the kind of wheels come off. I mean, talking to USS, uh, US predators, uh, I was interested in this story about uh, the takeover of Odeon and UCI cinemas by uh, US cinema chain AMC. Guess again, taking advantage of the weak pound.
3: Yeah, and they, they actually called it um, like an opportunistic transaction as well. Um, so, yeah, as you say, AMC is, um, I think it's Texas based actually in the US. And yeah, they just saw an opportunity to buy um, up the London based Odeon and UCI cinemas. And I guess if we are going to have a bit of softening in sort of the economy, maybe a cinema investment is a relatively sensible one because. You know, cinemas are something people like to do. It's a treat. It's perhaps something they're not likely to think of giving up cold turkey. They might sort of go a bit less. but Cold still turkey going. from the cinema. Well, I couldn't think of a better phrase.
0: We we, we like cinemas. I mean, you know, the UK-listed play on the cinema industry is obviously Cineworld. Yeah. We've been, been fans of that for a very long time and, and kind of been proven right all along. All yeah, along.
3: Because they have, you know, the, the, the film slate in the past years has been very good, which helps, but also you're seeing the businesses develop a bit in terms of what they're offering to the cinema goer I mean worlds as the example um, you know, seeing a lot more concessions come in so things like Starbucks you're seeing a lot more of those in the cinema so what you're actually kind of getting is this rather than just literally turning up to watch your film and leaving again you might actually go a bit earlier spend some money have a coffee you know, there's more sweets and things to choose from. And just as time goes on, there's a bit more to add. And they're chipping away at the amount of money they're, they're getting from you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my kids like the Baskin Robbins concessions at Cineworld. There you go. If, if you Break heard, the bank every time.
1: Have you heard the theatre complaints around um, the... Um, Game of Thrones actor who's acting at the moment in the West End um I think he's doing Dr. Faustus and there's lots of people that watch Kit, TV. Harrington. Kit, Kit Harington Kit you like him don't you Emma
2: I, I like him a lot <laughs> yeah. and, and people
1: <laughs> people have been going into the theatre and eating loudly talking on their mobile phones and acting very un-theatre like almost like cinema goers the youth of today I, honestly what's the world coming to It's um, outrageous. we also have results from Pinewood and actually what's quite interesting with uh, Sterling's Fall is that it makes it more attractive for people to come and uh, and film here and they're doing very well anyway and they're doing very well anyway yeah so, th- so
0: they I mean they were having a, a conducting a strategic review into w- what, what they would actually do with the business but I guess that's on a kind of back burner there
1: there was no detail in the results so yeah we, we have to wait and see I think Rothschild's in there advising them about what to do but yeah they they are running a high capacity on the film side which is actually keeping their television stuff low but you know that's a good problem to have um, and they yeah they're doing very well
0: okay i mean let's let's go back to the u s takeover of of odeon uh as as an example Ian, because this kind of kind of preludes your uh taking stock column this week, which is about activist invest- investors now activist investors are essentially investors who take large stakes in companies to get a seat on the board and then go and give it a shake up and this is quite common in the u s but not so over here, but I think what you're saying is we might see a bit more of it uh that's perhaps not what I'm saying.
1: That's what people well, normally say. Share price falls in a weaker currency
0: could encourage overseas activists.
1: Could. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, you know this is very interesting and this is one of the things, uh, one of the suggestions um, made by Owen Walker who's an FT journalist who wrote this book uh, Barbarians in the Boardroom um, and he, he said this at the launch that Bradley and I went to uh, a couple of weeks ago um, which was that, yeah, as I've said if, if the, you know, with the, with the weaker pound and also with the share price falls we're going to see stakes perhaps being taken by activist investors. We've already seen that this year with Rolls-Royce, which has been suffering for a while, that the US San Francisco-based firm Value Act took a stake in Rolls-Royce and actually now has a seat on the board. Um, Mike, column is really about how UK activism and, and uh, shareholder activism and uh, European shareholder activism by extension is more quietist than the kind of US version there's a couple of reasons for that uh, that it talks about in the book such as the fact that you actually uh, as a shareholder within within UK businesses have more rights than you do in the states to mm-hmm. kind of call meeting well yeah it depends and yeah. we can, we'll go to, okay we can start that debate <laughs> but there's a why, why is it kind of why is there a cultural difference well partly there's a kind of doing stuff behind the scenes, so we see activity like the Rolls-Royce, things. this It's not quite as public. Activist firms have learned that when they come to the UK that they might want to take more of a softly, softly approach. Um, but perhaps, yeah, we'll see We'll see more of this. At the same time, we haven't seen an uptick in it over the past few years, some of the stat- statistics that are in there. So it hasn't taken off in the UK in the way that it has in the US since the financial crisis.
0: Yeah, I, we did write a feature on this a few years back, kind of predicting that we would see a wave of activism. And again, it's like you say, it's been very low-key. really it has
1: been there sort of bubbling away in the background, but... Uh... I mean, is it too, too far to go to say that around things and governance standards uk companies have put in quite a lot of work there so where there's i'm not saying uk companies are run better than us companies but there seems to be uh, an awareness and institutional investors have worked on this for a long time around improving governance actively engaging with companies and just because they're not actually hedge funds that are activists they are still trying to have uh, an an engagement with the company directors so yeah i think there's a few reasons why in the uk it perhaps hasn't taken off in the same kind of way but there is still you know that board seat rolls always it was pretty unprecedented but um yeah in the us is where you've seen some of the really interesting kind of case studies around some of these firms have you know less than one percent of the stock of a company and they are causing major changes at those companies
0: yeah i guess as you say it's something that we do a little more discreetly in this in this country, I've been watching billions. I don't know if you've seen that yet. It's on uh, now TV. Yeah, it's not it's not a form of uh, of uh, capitalism that I recognise. But uh, from from having worked in the city, but nevertheless, maybe the U maybe it is real in the U.S. And I just uh, I'm I'm just not used to seeing it. But yes, it's uh, if it's true, they do things a little bit more brusquely mm. than, than we do over here. I think uh, in the uh,
3: UK you're going to start seeing it a bit more. Like Ian said, this in the fund management industry, I think there's a big trend towards kind of what they call ESG investment. So environmental, social and governance investing. So investing on the basis that the companies you're putting your clients' money into are responsible companies. And so I think maybe that is kind of a a low-level form of activism, I suppose, Mm. whereby the industry more broadly may well begin to reward companies whose governance is better, whose environmental responsibilities are better. So like you're saying, it's a bit more of a, a quiet you know, less aggressive approach. Do, but-
0: do you think that's partly because of the there has been perhaps a cosy relationship between the larger shareholders, which tend to be the funds and pension funds, and and the boards of the UK's largest companies, who tend to do the rounds and be non-executives. And you know, it is a
1: bit of a club. It really. is a club, and that's why those those activists like Value Act which um, focus on building up their relationships with institutional investors have been able to enact major change through those relationships I think the interesting thing for our audience as retail shareholders is whether they'll get drawn into the fight at any point and I mentioned uh, Alliance Trust before and that was an interesting one where Elliott Advisors or the, the kind of UK arm of that um, actually was directly set up its own shareholder you know, registrar to actually uh, contact retail shareholders, there was a big battle over the retail base of that company mm. about which way they would vote. So it will be interesting whether our readers do get drawn into the fray as a kind of swing vote but you know, primarily it's still probably going to be institutions. But yeah, like you say, that cosy relationship, which we, we know happens between large shareholders, because there is that cosy relationship, That perhaps that's a reason why activists haven't made as much of the inroads, well, because there's so. very much of that conversation there already.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do th- I mean, retail investors, we know they own significant chunks of some of these companies, but their voices are not often heard as one, partly because of the thing I moan about a lot, which is the nominee structure, which actually removes some of their rights from them. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that in particular, I find, find particularly egregious and, and would like to, to see something done about it. And if the government does do something about that and actually introduces a true shareholder democracy,
1: we may actually see a bit more activism from the retail side. Especially if that's the direction of, um, policy a little bit. I mean, Theresa May's first speech just before actually she was um, confirmed um, as leader of the Tory party and thus Prime Minister w- w- talked about improving governance at companies. And it's something that's kind of been on the centre ground of uh, British politics for a few years. And it was discussed under the coalition government, which was putting employees on boards. But now it's also to about putting consumers on boards as well. So if that is more than just talk and there is a will to kind of shake up big business um, from his mate, maybe um, we're going to see, you know, a shake up of board governance. And what's that, what does that mean? You know, what, how will that change the way that companies are run if they're forced to have a consumer on the board? I could think of companies where that would definitely be a good thing. Centrica, an <laughs> example. Yeah, exactly. Right. I am a
0: customer. Of, I would love to. have. I've got some words to say to their board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when we're... <laughs> you know, with the rail companies got <laughs> yep. something to say to them. Yep. Well, they probably heard it all already. So, uh, um, no, I, I think it's very interesting. I, I was very struck by, by those words from, from Teresa May. Um, be, and, and a lot of people were, and some people were very terrified of this anti, what they see saw as anti-business rhetoric um, that can actually do harm to shareholder uh, returns in the year's ahead If, you know, workers' rights and consumer rights become so, so loud that actually it eats into the returns these companies are making.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the other side of the argument. I wonder, obviously the the coalition government has put some of these proposals out to consultation before they haven't been followed through. You wonder whether this is putting up a balloon. You wonder whether it's symbolically saying I'm going to appeal to the centre ground. She actually said, oh, I'm going to try and be radical. You know, is in you some ra- ways it's just... a
0: fairly radical in her uh, new cabinet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So in some ways it's a right, it's a, it's a right, right of centre politician who's appealing to the centre ground by saying look, we care about, um, you know, bashing big business, at least in rhetoric. But we will have to wait and see whether these proposals will come through they've also talked about the the pay multiples something we've written about as well um between ceo and average worker and yeah so these things i can imagine some people are quite cynical about this because it just tends to come back around these topics Mm. but if there is some traction here what does that mean for companies in terms of them being forced more to think about consumers um yeah.
0: We will no doubt explore it in full, uh, in the fullness of time. Uh, we write a lot about pay. Uh, our freelance contributor, Paul Jackson, writes a lot about this. He's he's from that side of things. And uh, I think we do some good stuff there. So uh, anyway, anyone wants any advice on pay, directors pay, give us a shout. Um, OK, well, let's talk talk about banks, Emma. The cover feature this week. Banks have not exactly been doing wonders for their shareholders recently, nor indeed, some would say, their customers. And the they've been very hard hit uh, as a result of the referendum. I'm not sure it is entirely the result of the referendum, but what, what you're essentially saying is that, that what it has done is bring some of the problems they have into focus. What are what are those problems?
2: Yeah, like you said, I, I don't think... I mean, financials have been having a tough time of it, a torrid time. Oh, to here we
0: go, another shot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> For a long time, I mean, arguably since the financial crisis, frankly. But um, they were on
0: a bit of a recovery footing, you, you, you would have thought.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, and, you know, some... You know, massive restructurings have happened. As I kind of mentioned, you know, people like Lloyd's, um, RBS, Barclays to an extent, have really stripped back a lot of their operations to have um, a lot more of a retail focus, more of a UK focus. Then there's, of course, you know, HSBC, um, who've kept that more universal model. But particularly Lloyd's, Barclays, RBS... There's selling off a lot of operations to try and reduce uh, their risk rated assets and a lot of their costs um, on one side, and they've made good inroads into that, but they're still having a, a really hard time of trying to actually make money to generate income, and the main reason for that is low interest rates
0: yeah and so, so I mean after Brexit after the referendum results you know there was some further pressure on uh, on bond yields uh, guilt yields etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and it's that it's that that squeeze that as you say in the future makes life difficult for them to make money that, yeah. that kind of underpins the way they make money
2: yeah Basically, what it means it squeezes their net interest margin. So what that means is is that um, you know deposits are counted as a liability for a bank. They borrow short term and lend long term. Mm-hmm. It basically means that as the um, and we've seen it in the US as well as the uh, yield curve flattens, that that gap between the normally high interest rates, um, which they charge for things like mortgages, um, long term loans, the gap between that and where they the, the interest they pay out on, say, you know, current accounts bank accounts um, mm. on those deposits is just getting um, it's getting tighter, so it's coming harder for them to make money. So, you know, when you get banks like Lloyd's, RBS, where this is their big focus, is on retail operations, the returns on equity will become lower, and, and that's the, the, the concern. Basically, yeah, you can cut costs, but while doing that, you also do need to be generating income, yeah. and with low interest rates, that becomes harder. So
0: I guess this is why... And obviously, alongside things like the Italian banking crisis, and it is a crisis that we're seeing at the moment, um, whilst you have seen property shares bounced back despite some of the problems we've had with open-ended funds. House builders have bounced back despite worries about uh, the uh, you know the consumer economy, uh, and even some retailers have started to bounce back quite strongly as well. The bank shares haven't really responded uh, in the same way.
2: No, it was interesting actually because um, Standard Chartered and HSBC. Obviously, HSBC has I think about eighty percent of its income comes from Asia. They their shares actually I think they've gained since Brexit. Well,
0: that's that's quite interesting because so HSBC, Standard Chartered, much more global in scope. Do have some UK operations, yeah. but, but, but a lot more uh, around the world and particularly in the Far East. Uh, RBS lawyers, like you say, Barclays to a certain extent, much more focused on the UK, uh, as are the challenger banks. Uh, who have also been
2: hammered. Who, who, are more, who are more exposed, some would say, to the... Obviously, uh, they've been posting phenomenal growth, but it's um, SME and buy-to-let lending. Mm. So they've had a bit of a double whammy.
0: But I guess, you know, if you would have looked at the banking industry, say, uh, two years ago, when, for example, the emerging market crisis was in full flow, it was HSBC and Standard Charter that were getting hammered. You know, the ones with these global uh, operations, the universal banks, as you might call them, and everyone wanted to be, exposed to the retail lenders. And now it's the retail... Leto lenders that are the trouble. And so well, yeah, how on earth are you expected to make sense of where to put your money
1: as a bank investor? Or do you just retrench from the whole thing? Well that's, well, that's the question that Emma is answering in this feature. But I think on that point, it's quite interesting that the Bank of England's last stress test modelled an emerging market crisis. Uh, and obviously, the banks that came through that stress test strongest were Lloyd's and those that didn't have that emerging market focus. was actually now what, we've, what we're looking to have is possibly a recession next year or possibly just slower growth than expected, characterized by a fall in property, which means, you know, rising bad loans. It also, you know, it's it's sort of gonna suppress the um, kind of commercial banking operations of these lenders. So the problems that we're now seeing is, yeah, having that domestic focus. So it was really interesting for emmet 's piece that you kind of... It played into that question of what kind of bank do you want to be? Do you want to back the universal banking model? And universal not just meaning global, but also meaning um, having uh, investment banking operations yeah. to have that diversity of revenue? Or, do you, or, or are you sticking with the kind of highly capitalised retail-focused banks like Lloyd's thinking, well, we are going to still need retail banks in 10, 15 years, and it has a huge share of the market... Well, back that it's well capitalized. It started to pay dividends again. It's a very difficult. I think it's one of the most difficult questions to answer at the moment for a private investors. Al- it's almost an impossible question. But Emma,
2: it is an I almost impossible you question. May have an answer. And we've kind of stuck with Lloyds. We did. Um, it was a recovery tip of the year, I think, by Ian at the start of this year. Actually, it did come good. I think that um, on on our buy advice, I think a lot of the investment case was on whether it would pay out um, or whether it would increase its dividend, which it did do. So it it did it did pay out on that, and and it is um, we've stuck with that buy advice, um, and it is our kind of a top pick because it is very well capitalised. They've already shown that you know that they can increase the dividend um, in tough economic times, and I think to retrench from to completely retrench from the financials, I think would be a bit hasty right now. I mean, it's still very early days, but in terms of what you've got to go on, I think the restructuring the restructuring plan seems like it's going in the right direction. I mean, RBS actually was another tip-by-tip we did have, and I, I took it off a buy um, at the time of the last results because they actually pushed out their dividend even further. Mm. And I guess, you know, traditionally the financial, financials, the banks were. Income stocks and obviously they they've changed massively in the past couple of years to you know not necessarily being that and obviously Barclays cut their dividend but I think that's why we stuck I wanted to stick with Lloyds um for those those kind of reasons.
0: What do you make of the uh, prospects of the challenger banks now? Then I mean the we like them.
2: Yeah, yeah. But,
0: but is life going to get much more difficult for them now?
2: I mean, that, that's the thing, isn't it? They, they were posting such high returns on equity. They were growing their loan books phenomenally. They were free of the legacy issues, you know, around mis-selling of PPI and things like that, that, you know, really weighed down the mainstream lenders. But of course, when something like this happens, I mean, Shawbrook, Aldermore, One Savings Bank, all just absolutely tanked i mean shawbrook actually they had some issues around writing bad loans for their asset finance division mm-hmm. so maybe um, specific that's companies is different yeah, yeah company specific, specific yeah.
1: but but it is in some ways symptomatic of an industry asset finance growing incredibly quickly Uh, more competition coming into the sector and then surprise, surprise, you have a a lender that is writing loans that does not fit its its risk criteria. Yeah. Which says to me, you know, it's going to happen inevitably. So you need to also look at the lenders that perhaps have a longer term track record around writing through cycles Close Brothers perhaps being one of them but yeah I, I think one of the big questions for this is what is going to happen in the residential property market? If you, The predictions are currently from the sector that fewer houses are going to be coming onto the market. We already well, saw, we saw some stats
0: today yeah, saying, saying just that.
1: Exactly that and we already saw running into this all these kind of problems that banks are having that there is greater competition for residential mortgages which were putting further interest on those margins that Emma was talking about earlier so that was happening. The buy-to-let changes came in just at the wrong time, arguably, for banks, ahead of what now looks like pressure on the residential property market, which, OK, it might be a very good thing for people buying houses, but in terms of what's good for banks, it might be a tricky few years now to be a retail bank focused on that market.
0: And indeed, I, I think yeah, you make an interesting point about the Challenger banks here, Emma, which is that they they're not all created equal. So someone like Virgin Money has a very different business to someone like uh, Shawbrook or Aldermore. Yeah, so uh,
2: Virgin I- Money is a, a big focus for them is growing their credit cards business, and they actually already preparing for for, for a low interest rate environment so, I would say a virgin money, obviously, is very different to a Shawbrook and an Aldermore, which is much more geared into, you know, the, the residential property market or the buy-to-let market, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And what, what do we make of the, um, the more Asian-focused uh, lenders, standard Chartered, HSBC? I mean, obviously, as we, we said, they had a couple of difficult years. Things are looking a bit brighter for them?
2: Well yeah actually it's interesting Link to that the the more asia um focused we've just seen um a, an update from Ashmore today which was uh it seemed that you know they were they were outperforming and it seemed like may- maybe we're starting to see the turn of emerging markets I mean undoubtedly it's a sw- it's a kind of a pendulum that'll keep swinging but um I think HSBC, actually, it's got a good dividend that's well covered. So I would say kind of I upgraded HSBC to a hold, I think, for that reason. I mean, yeah, it is, it is an almost impossible question to answer. You know, which is better, universal banking, retail banking? I've got
0: to say, when I look at that list of banks, the one that jumps out to me uh, as the one that I would have in my portfolio is HSBC. Yeah the reason being that it has that UK exposure which which you know we liked Elements of in some of the other banks, but it does have a much more diversified business model uh, and feels like a much more stable business
1: than some of the others. There's a question at the moment around Asia, and they're putting a lot of stress on how they can grow in Asia. Their the Asia big, pivot. Their mean, Asia pivot. It.
0: But I buy, I buy the Asia pivot.
1: I, I buy it, but it's how quickly that change in, in the kind of Chinese economy, especially towards more kind of consumer focused consumption, financial services and banking and insurance, where, how quickly that can happen. And they're putting a lot of stress on that. So, but yeah, I think if you, yeah, if you look at this table, you're getting some huge discounts to forward book values in the current share price. So, for you to look at that, you'd have to say, well, these are going to have to come down quite substantially these <laughs> book values, you know. So, I just there's there's lots there for people at the moment. And HSBC has a very high dividend, but can it sustain its growth? That's the big question. Mm. And where is it going to find it?
0: I guess banks remain one for the long term
2: price to book valuations have come down a lot so i think that's another reason that i would say don't completely retrench i think it's just about picking out you know better capitalized more quality plays and it's for the long term basically
0: Great. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Emma. Banks after Brexit, definitely worth a read. There's lots more in there to uh, to get your teeth into. Okay, uh, just talk you through what else we've got in the magazine, quite weak on the results front, but a busy week on the feature front. John Rosier, our private investor diarist, has updated on his experience of the Brexit sell-off. As well as that, we have a feature from Philip Ryland, on a portfolio we launched in 1966. We've been around a long time, the Investors Chronicle, which has delivered a return of 4,492% in capital gains alone over 50 years. Just go to show. Stick, stick with things for the long term and they will come good. Uh, and obviously uh, the next instalment of our 50 Objects series. Plenty in the news section beyond what we've discussed uh, and obviously more comments this week, uh, a lot of which is again focused on Brexit and the fallout of that. Chris Dillo, in fact, talking about liquidity risk uh, specifically in relation to the property story that we discussed earlier. And I've updated the COPOC indicators, which are becoming increasingly hard to read, but nevertheless still tell a story. Uh, and our readers are very keen on COPOC, our uh, long-term buying system. So thank you very much for listening again. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Ian. And thank you, Bradley. We will be back again next week. Hopefully we won't have too much of a torrid time this week. Thank you for listening and see you soon.